Afterwards he brought me again unto the door of the house, and behold, waters issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward, for the forefront of the house stood towards the east, and the waters came down from under, from the right side of the house, at the south side of the altar. Then he brought me out of the way of the gate northward, and led me about the way without unto the utter gate by the way that looketh eastward. And behold, there ran out waters on the right side. And when the man that had the line in his right hand in his hand went forth eastward, he measured a thousand cubits, and he brought me through the waters, and the waters were to the ankles. Again he measured a thousand, and brought me through the waters, and the waters were to the knees. Again he measured a thousand, and he brought me through, the waters were to the loins. Afterward he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass over, for the waters were risen, waters to swim in, in a river that could not be passed over. Well, I want to take a very brief glimpse this evening at a, quite a substantial chunk of the Bible and this little picture in Ezekiel 47 is a very apt illustration of the whole of the Bible the waters are of varying depths they, uh, there's a, a comfortable paddling pool for infants to start with and then there is this immeasurable body of water which the prophet himself is unable to pass here in the scriptures there's delight and comfort for the young in the faith, those who are new to these things, but there's also things that are mysterious and dazzling to the oldest and the most expert reader of the scriptures and believer in the Saviour. And in these nine chapters, from chapter 40 down to 48, we have this very mysterious but very intriguing picture of Ezekiel's temple. I just want to give you a few keys in the very short time we have to understand it. To understand it well, we have to understand a bit about Ezekiel. He was a priest. He was in exile from Jerusalem. So the picture he sees of Jerusalem is in a vision. And he was a contemporary of Daniel, and a little bit later than Jeremiah, and he preceded Zechariah. So we, we can place him amongst the prophets. Now, in chapter 11 of Ezekiel's prophecy, because of the extremely disturbing idolatry, where they even worship the sun and turn their back, on the Holy of Holies, so wicked they are, um, there is a judgment in chapter 9 and 10. And then in chapter 11, the glory of God in Ezekiel's vision leaves the temple and goes up onto the Mount of Olives and departs because of this idolatry, because of this extreme uh, sin. And then we come in the middle of this very interesting vision that, that Ezekiel sees from chapter 40 to 40 in chapter 43 and I want to turn to that first as we start to understand this because we begin to see the glory of God coming back coming back into the house of God it's departed where's the glory where's the, where's the power where's the presence of God now he's coming back and this is what you read verse 2 of chapter 43 behold the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east and his voice was like a noise of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory. And it was according to the appearance of the vision which I saw, even according to the vision that I saw when I came to destroy the city. 
And the visions were like the vision that I saw upon the river Kibar, right at the beginning of the book. And I fell on my face. He was so amazed, so disturbed. He's not familiar with this. He hasn't um, become used to it. He still falls on his face. And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate, whose prospect is toward the east. For the Spirit took me up, brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. Here is God's presence, back, right in the heart of the temple. And here is what God says when he comes back. Verse 7, he said to me, Son of man, the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever, and my holy name shall the house of Israel no more defile. And then he speaks of other things. Well, so he's coming back permanently. This isn't just a temporary return. This is a permanent presence. And then he describes in uh, verse 9, uh, verse 10, sorry, things that he, he encourages the children of Israel to remember. He says this. If they be ashamed of all that they have done, the wickedness, the idolatry, the folly that they have done, which we spoke of a little, show them this. Show them four things in a nutshell. The form of the house and its fashion. We'll count that as one. The goings out and the comings thereof. We'll count that as the second. The entrances and the exits. All the forms thereof and all the ordinances thereof. And then there are other words here which I won't go into the details of, but I'll subdivide them into these four categories. So, the measurement of the house, its form and fashion, the entrance and exits, and some laws and ordinances. And the first law of this house is this, verse 12. This is the law of the house, but we'll be coming back to this a little later. The whole limit thereof about shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the house. This is a place of holiness. It's a place of love. It's a place of purity. It's a place of joy. It's a place of strength and of blessing. That's the main characteristic of this wonderful place. Now, different interpreters have taken different views of these very intriguing and difficult chapters over the years. And I want to just raise them with you quickly so you have an understanding of the background, uh, really to knock down the ones that I think clearly are false. First of all, many interpreters, liberal interpreters usually, say this is the second temple. This is the second temple, the temple into which the Lord Jesus went, which of course wasn't present when Ezekiel wrote these words. But anyone who looks at this passage, even briefly, will realise that's not possible, because there are so many things that are not consistent with the temple that Ezekiel describes in the second temple. For one thing, as we say, the Lord will dwell there permanently. And where's the second temple now? It's gone. It's ashes. It's dust. It's been burnt up. So it couldn't be the second temple. A much more popular view amongst the Jews, for example, is this is the third temple. A temple yet to be constructed for which many rabbinic Jews wait eagerly. Many of them say it will need the Messiah to come first and then he will build the third temple. Well, in answer to that suggestion, 
I would point you very briefly to Isaiah chapter 66, because this is what, uh, how the Lord's prophet responds to such a possibility. Verse chapter 66 of Isaiah, but please keep your finger in Ezekiel, we'll be going back. Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool, where is the house that you build unto me? Where is the place of my rest? For all those things that have, that hath my hand made, and all these things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor, and of a contrite spirit, and trembles at my word. He that kills an ox is as if he slew a man. He that sacrifices a lamb is as if he cut a dog's neck. He that offers an oblation as if he offered swine's blood, pig's blood. So the idea that animal sacrifices will be reinstated, that the whole covenant of Leviticus will be brought back, is actually blasphemous. It's a blasphemy against Christ, it's blasphemy against the New Testament, and it's a very serious offence. But the peculiar thing is there is quite a large group of Christians who also take the same view. They say in the millennium, in the coming literal millennium, a thousand years, something that we find uh, difficult to find in Revelation 20, um, animal sacrifices will be started again. And that, I think, is a very serious mistake. But that's the second view, that this is the third temple and that animal sacrifices will be brought back. The third view, I think, is more reasonable, and that is we're looking at heaven. We're looking at glimpse of what's going to come in the future. We're looking at the eternal realm. And there's no doubt that some of the later chapters of this vision, particularly chapter 48, have very strong echoes of Revelation chapter 21 and 22. And we'll see that a little bit more strongly later on. So there's no doubt it, it ushers in uh, the prospect of heaven. But there's a serious problem with that view. And that is sin is present in the chapters. Sin offerings are made. So it couldn't just be a view of heaven. It might stretch out into heaven and extend onto heaven. But there's something else very much at heart and mind. After all, we know in heaven there will be no sin. What's the need of a sin offering? What's the need of an altar? What's the need of a priest? What's the need of a, uh, of a mediator between a sinner and a holy God in a place where there is no sin? But we'll come back to that a little later. So the, the proper and the right view of this is that this temple is now. It's now. In a strange way, and yet perhaps more fully we shall see it in the future as God's purposes unfold, there is a real sense in which this temple is present now. And I hope you'll see that with me as we press on. First of all, measurements. So I said we're going to look at four areas. First of all, measurements. Well, the first three chapters are filled with some really quite complex um, measurements, and it's very easy to get bogged down with them. It's very easy to get perplexed by them, and I'm not going to attempt to... Uh, to uh, explain the details of the minutiae would be here for a, a week of Sundays we did that, or a week of days we did that. But right at the very beginning in chapter 40, a messenger is sent to Ezekiel, a very special messenger who looks like shining brass, 
with a line of flex, chapter 14, verse 3, and with a very special measuring reed in his hand. And he says, Son of man, verse 4, behold with your eyes, hear with your ears, set your heart upon all that I show you, for to the intent that I might show them unto thee you are brought here. This is the whole purpose, so you understand this. So the measurements are important. Well, the rod that he carries in his right hand has six great cubits. That means it's about 12 feet in length. Um, so it's a substantial rod. And the outer space of the temple, which we find at the end of chapter 42 and verse, verse 20, is 500 reeds by 500 reeds. That's pretty big. That's, about, that's over a square mile. That's a very large space, much bigger than the Temple Mount. So again, this is a big problem for the Second Temple view. It's quite a big problem for the Third Temple view, that the Third Temple will be literally reconstructed. It's much bigger than the Temple Mount. It's bigger even than the old city walls of Jerusalem. So this is a big space. So there's an outer space uh, over a square mile in, in area, and then inside it, there is a, an inner square. Right at the heart of this outer square is an inner square. And we see this in chapter 40, verse 47, where in a nutshell he says, um, so he measured the court, the inner court, 100 cubits long and 100 cubits broad, four square, and the altar that was before the house. So this is interesting. Then there's the city. The city in which the, the uh, temple is found, and this is described in more detail right at the very end of the vision, in chapter 48 and verse 32, and he says, the east side 4,500, and the measurements here are reeds, we believe, that would place the um, whole of the city in a, in a four-square uh, area about a quarter of the, the area of Greater London. It's a very large space, about um, uh, 18 kilometres by 18 kilometres. So it's a, it's a big space, about half the diameter of Lo Greater London, about a quarter of the area, four square. So again, it's a very big space. And then you get the land strips, and these are measured out at 25,000 reeds. That's about 100 kilometres or 60 miles. And that's broader than the land of Israel is at the moment. So these are quite serious problems for anyone who wants to interpret this uh, in a strict, literal way. The measurements. But there's more. Then there's the form. Now, strangely, the temple is very simple. The, the, the details of the measurements about the, the chambers and the stairs and the, the tortuous course that Ezekiel takes through it are complex. But the actual form is very simple. There's an outer square and an inner square. And if you imagine the inner square, 100 cubits by 100 cubits, on the west end is the house of the temple. And what's in the temple? Well, he gives very little description. He gives, he gives a description of some engravings on the wall, very similar to Solomon's temple. But where's the ark? Where's the table of the showbread? Where's the candlestick? Where's the golden altar? Where's the brass altar? They're, they're, they're alluded to, but they're not specifically described. 
Where is the sea where the priests would wash their hands and feet before they went for the sacrifice? Where is the veil? Where is the veil that separates the Holy of Holies? They're all absent. There is reference to the altar. We'll come back to that. But the others are all absent, or so it seems. And this is a problem. Because, you see, the temple without the ark is empty. In a real sense, it's empty. When Solomon consecrated the temple, if you go with me to 1 Kings chapter 8, you'll see this. When Solomon consecrated the first temple, verse 20 of 1 Kings uh, chapter 8, Take pardon, verse 10. This is what the text says. And it came to pass when the uh, priests were come out of the holy place, the cloud filled the holy temple, and that was because they had just brought in the ark. Verse 6. The priests brought in the ark of the covenant into the place, into the oracle, to the most holy place, even under the wings of the cherubims. In a real sense, the temple was empty without God's, the symbol of God's particular and specific presence, that golden box that contained the law. Without it, the temple was empty. And that's why this very exciting passage where the glory of God approaches through the east gate, comes into the temple and lights up the whole house is so important. Because God is coming back. The glory of God is approaching. Now, Ezekiel tells us that the vision was like to the original vision he saw right at the beginning of the book. I want to go back to that very quickly because it's important and it will help you understand something important about the ark and what this temple is all about. So we go back to the beginning of Ezekiel, chapter 1. We see what it was that Ezekiel saw. And I'm just going to pick up a few verses from here. So Ezekiel chapter 1, it came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth month, the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives in exile by the river of Kibar, that the heavens were opened and I saw a vision of the glory of God. Verse 4, and I looked and behold a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud and a fire enfolding itself, and a brightness was about it, and out of the midst of it, as the colour of amber out of the midst of the fire and also out of the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures and this was their appearance they had the likeness of a man with four faces and four wings what we see here is a kind of chariot a kind of chariot with four horses <laughs> but they're not horses they're angels and no ordinary angels at that. These are very powerful and very impressive angels. And with them there are other angels which are strangely called wheels. Now I don't want to get into the details of this. Simply to say this is a chariot. And on it there is a rider. And we see this in the same chapter down at verse 26. Above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne. As the appearance of a sapphire stone. And upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness as, as the appearance of a man. God's glory appearing as a man above this chariot. And verse 28 is the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, a rainbow. So is the appearance of the brightness round about it. 
This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one that spoke. God speaks to him. God's word speaks to him. Here is a picture of Christ. Here is a picture of Christ, as it were, on a chariot. Now, how is this connected to the ark? Well, in Psalm 18, verse 10, David speaks about the Lord answering his prayer, riding on a cherub. And perhaps even more personally, in First Chronicles, it speaks about the ark of the covenant as a chariot. As a chariot. If you don't believe me, turn up the verse, First Chronicles, verse 28, verse 18. And I'll read it for you if you don't want to turn. He says this, And for the altar of incense refined gold by weight, the golden altar and gold for the pattern of the chariot of the cherubims that spread out their wings and covered the ark of the covenant of the Lord. What we're seeing here is a sort of picture, a, a miniature of something much more real, much more powerful, which Ezekiel sees here in the vision. God's presence, God right in the midst of four living creatures, living beings. It's a vision we see also in Revelation, but it's on the move. The glory of God is moving. And here we see God's very presence, God's very glory. And upon the chariot, if you like, is a man, the similitude of the glory of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, coming in from the east and entering into the house, filling the house with glory. Do you remember what Haggai said? Well, he said some wonderful words. One of his promises is this one, and it's well worth reading too. Here it is, Haggai chapter 2, verse 7. Don't trouble to turn. I will shake all nations. The desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord. Well, he's speaking not of the third temple. He's speaking of the second temple, because that's the one that was founded in the days when Haggai spoke. He was there when they laid the foundation stone. He was there when they laid the topmost stone. So what is the glory he's speaking of? It wasn't seen for many centuries. But a few hundred years later, Anna, that widow who waited patiently, praying and fasting, and Simeon waited, praying, knowing that he wouldn't die till he'd seen this glory, saw that little Galilean babe brought in by his mother, father, or adopted father, to present him before the Lord. Here is the glory of God coming into the temple, unrecognised by so many, but here is God's own word coming in. Well, so the Ark of the Covenant has come, has entered. And what need do we have for a candlestick? What need do we have of light? When the Lord Jesus Christ himself is in the place, his doctrine, his character, his perfection, great I am is with us. What need for a menorah? What need for a veil? Again, God, God's presence is now unveiled. It's revealed to us through his son, through his word, not hidden. But like a city set on a hill, here is a light to all the corners of the earth, all four corners of the earth. But it's interesting, as he says, about the law of the house, holiness we spoke of a little earlier on and some of the characteristics of the house he goes straight on in chapter 43 in verse 13 
to speak about the very heart of the temple. And I want to focus on this particularly. He speaks about the altar. Here it is. These are the measures of the altar after the cubits. And then he describes the measurements and he describes other details. Now, I don't want to, to get uh, too stuck down with the details of its measurements and its size and its exact placement. But there are three references to the altar in Ezekiel's vision. The first is found in chapter 40 and 47. And he says this. So he measured the court, 100 cubits long, 100 cubits broad, four square, and the altar that was before the house. Not in the house, before the house. Here is an altar in the middle of this inner square, this inner court. Right at the very heart of the temple complex is an altar. And then in, verse four, in chapter 41, there's another description of an altar. By the way, what is an altar? Well, it's a place where sacrifices are presented before God, where, where blood is offered before God. Blood is presented, the blood of the sacrifices. It's a place, in some cases, where a sacrifice is burnt before God, but not always. But the essence of it is the, the life, the blood, the essence of the animal is brought before God and offered before him, sacrificed by the priests. Not necessarily the place of the slaying of the animal, but the place of its presentation. Chapter 41, verse 22. Here is the altar of wood. The altar of wood was three cubits high, the length of it two cubits, the corners of it, and the walls of it were of wood. And he said, this is the table that is before the Lord. Very simple, very bare, no mention of gold, no mention of brass. How strange. There were two, two, two altars in the tabernacle, two altars in Solomon's temple. One of brass, or covered with brass, depending on which, which one you're looking at, and one of, go one, uh, of gold. Actually, it was shittim wood covered with gold, acacia wood covered with gold. But this one is just of wood. Very simple, very basic. What's going on? And it seems to um, be present, again, as the prophet leaves the, inner, the temple to go into the outer court. You look at verse four, chapter 42, verse 1, then he brought me forth into the outer court. So it's as he's going through the inner court and to the outer court that he sees this altar, or he makes note of it. So here we have an altar, and it seems to correspond in dimension to the golden altar, the one upon which prayer and incense would be offered. But um, interestingly, in verse 22, the verse we read in chapter 41, he says, this is the table that is before the Lord. What table could that be? What is this table? Well, there's only one table that would qualify for the one before the Lord, and that's the showbread table, the table where the showbread is. What's going on here? Here is an altar that's also a table that, that uh, would represent the showbread. Very peculiar. Here are the 12 loaves which represent the nourishment of the tribes of Israel, which we've been thinking about in Exodus. The showbread which represents Christ, the bread of life. So something very mysterious is going on. But the mystery is perhaps deepened and clarified at the same time in chapter 43, where we see this 
this altar again. These are the measures of the altar, chapter 43, verse 13, the cubit, uh, and then he gives the detailed measurements, and then he describes it as a four-square altar with four horns, and again it seems to be in the middle of this inner square, this inner court. Now, this seems to represent the altar of the, the burnt offerings, which was the main uh, altar upon which sacrifices were were offered to the Lord. But no distinction is made in Ezekiel's text between this, which would have been a brass altar in the tabernacle and the temple, and the wooden, temp wooden altar that he's just described, which in the tabernacle and the temple would have been golden. So here, is this, is, here appears to be uh, the same altar from a different perspective, from a different, a different view. Do you remember where the writer of the Hebrews says we have uh, an altar of which they have no right to eat who serve the tabernacle? One altar. There's one altar for us. One altar of approach. One altar by which we come before the living God. There aren't two altars for us. There's only one altar. And then away, again, the way that Ezekiel describes this altar as rather peculiar. In verse 15 in the Hebrew, the word there in the English translation is just altar. But the Hebrew word is the mountain of God. The mountain of God. And it's translated very simply. And in verse 16, it's slightly different in the Hebrew, although Strong's concordance gives the same number. And it seems to be the lion of God. The lion of God. Who's this? Who could this be? What's going on here? A wooden altar instead of a golden altar. And now, the mountain of God and the lion of God. Who is this and what's going on? It's all rather mysterious. Well, we'll come back to this. So the second issue is the form and the fashion of the temple. We've looked at the measurements very briefly. We looked at the form and the fashion. The third area is the entrances and exits. Well, the first entrance is obvious. Where the glory of God came in. The east side of the complex east side actually there are only three gates only three gates for the outer court only three gates for the inner court although it's four square there's no, no entrances and exits on the west side just like the tabernacle and in this east gate chapter 44 verse 1 he says this then he brought me back by the way of the gate of the outward sanctuary that's the outer square which looks towards the east and it was shut it was shut. Then said the Lord to me, This gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened, and no man shall enter in by it, because the Lord, the God of Israel, hath entered in by it. Therefore it shall be shut. It is a divine door. It's a divine gate. No one else is to go through. But then in verse 3 he says this, It is for the prince. It is for the prince. Well, doesn't that suggest something about the prince? The prince, and then he says something very interesting about the prince too. He shall sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by the way of the porch of that gate, and he shall go out by way of the same. So the east gate is for the glory of God, and the prince, who is this strange character? Who is this prince? Well, he will sit you know, there were very few, there are very few references to sitting in the temple. 
Eli, the very old priest, sat down in the temple, and the Lord Jesus Christ sat down in the temple. But I don't know of anybody else. Correct me if I'm wrong. And of course, usually in a king's court, the courtiers, the servants, would stand and serve. Only the king sits down, usually, unless it's a banquet. And he eats. Again, that's a very strange thing for a king to do. Usually it was the priests who would eat in the temple, not the king. So there's something very interesting. And he sits before the Lord. It suggests, again, he is sitting, he's seated before the Lord's presence. Well, there are references to the priests, and I, I don't want to, um, to uh, get too um, involved with them in detail. But the, the priests who were acceptable to God were Zadok's line. Zadok means those who are justified. That's the meaning of the name Zadok. Someone who is justified is the passive. And of course, brethren, we are justified freely by his grace. Not by our works, not by our purity, not by our own acts, but by on account of our Saviour's purity and his sacrifice, his death and his life. But where's the high priest? Where's the high priest? Where are those fancy garments we've been reading about and thinking about with the pastor? Where are those bells that we need to hear in order for him not to die? He doesn't seem to be present. But there is somebody who's very prominent, and again, it's the prince. Who is this prince? Who is he? Look at 30, 44 and verse 17. Um, I think... I beg your pardon, uh, 45 and verse 17. It shall be the prince's part to give burnt offerings and meat offerings and drink offerings in the feasts, in the new moons, in the Sabbaths, in all the solemnities of the house of Israel. He shall prepare the sin offering and the meat offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings to make reconciliation for the house of Israel. Don't you think that's a bit much? Isn't that rather a lot? The prince seems to be taking the role the head of the priestly work of the temple. Now, of course, it's discreet. Ezekiel himself as a priest. He knew the prohibitions on the royalty taking any part in, the, in priestly work. But the prince seems to be taking an extremely large part in at least providing all of these many different types of sacrifices. And look down to verse 22 of chapter 45. And upon that day shall the prince prepare for himself and for all the people of the land, a bullock for a sin offering. Now the Jews will take this, the rabbinic Jews will say, ah, well there you are, if this is the Messiah, he needs to offer for his own sin. Not quite so fast, we say, not quite so fast. Because when Aaron makes an offering for the tabernacle, because it's been defiled by sin, or when he cleanses the altar, both altars, in fact, because they've been defiled by sin. Did the altar sin? Did the tabernacle sin? What, what sin did it do? It's a sin bearer, and so is the prince. Just because he, he becomes an offering for sin, just because he has to make an offering for sin, doesn't mean he's sinful himself. And then there's another sense, and that is that the word uh, um, for here is actually the word through. 
It, can, it is used for looking through a window. So it can also mean on account of or on behalf of uh, and, and through. So perhaps we're seeing a hint by Ezekiel that this prince actually plays more a part in these sacrifices than we uh, care to note. Well, let's have a quick glimpse at the East Gate again. We said it was closed, and uh, when the prince, chapter 46 and verse 8, when the prince shall enter, he shall go in by the way of the porch of that gate, and he shall go forth by that way. But what about everybody else? They have to come in through the other gates, north and south. And there's a very interesting rule here in verse 9. Those that come in from the north must go out through the south. Those that come in from the south must go out through the north. And all the time, verse 10, chapter 46, the prince is in the midst of them. The prince is in the midst of them. When they go in, she'll go in. And when they go forth, she'll go forth. Sound familiar? Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I, in the midst of them. The prince is here. Our prince is here. Our saviour is amongst us. When we come in, he's here. When we go out, he's waiting for us. <laughs> and he goes out with us. Here is a glorious glimpse of his work. It suggests something else too, brethren. It suggests too that right at the very heart of the temple is the prince. But you remember there was something else at the very heart of the temple. And that was the altar. The altar in the middle of the court had steps going up to it. It's almost as though the altar is his throne. It's almost as though he's seated on the altar as though it was his throne. Now that's a, quite a strange suggestion, but there are quite strong hints of that in other passages. And I'll read them briefly. Ezekiel chapter 6 and verse 6. Here you have a son of David. Zechariah, sorry, chapter 6 and verse 12. Thus, saith, thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, a Davidic name, he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne. And a council of peace shall be between them both. Interesting. A priest seated on a throne in the temple which he has built himself. And then Revelation. Do you remember that glorious view of the, of the eternal God seated on his throne in Revelation chapter 5? And with a mysterious set of documents in his right hand. Sealed so that no one can open them. I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a, a strong angel saying, who is worthy to open the book to loose its seals? And no one was worthy. And he wept. He wept much. And then verse 6, I beheld and lo in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts. Do you remember those four cherubim? And in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, a sacrificial lamb. A lamb is fit for the altar. A lamb is fit for the place of sacrifice, as it had been slain. 
Well, that's a hint that the altar again is his throne. And there's another hint in Revelation, which is found in chapter 9, verse 13. Uh, we'll pass by it very quickly, where he says, And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, that's the altar of incense, which is before God. So from within the four horns of the altar comes a voice, as though the throne itself is the altar. Here is the meeting place. William Tyndale, when he translated the Greek Bible into English, chose a lovely word for Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5, the mercy seat, the mercy seat. Actually, the Greek word means propitiation. It means an atoning sacrifice. It's the cover of the, of the Ark of the Covenant. It's the cover. And if you think about it, friends, in reality... There were three altars in the old temples, in the old temple, the old tabernacle, not just two. There was the burnt offering, there was the, the brass altar that is, there was the golden altar, that's the altar of uh, incense, and then there was the ark, upon which also blood was offered before God. It was a kind of altar, only used once a year, but it was also used to present sacrifice before God. And here we see that mercy seat upon which the prince sits, I suggest to you. And we see it too in Isaiah 6. Well, fourthly, commands and laws. And I'll just give you one very quick example of this since time has flown from us. Chapter 45 and verse 21. In the first month, in the 14th day of the month, you shall have the Passover, a feast of seven days. Unleavened bread shall be eaten. Very familiar to us. And upon that day, the prince shall prepare for himself and for all the people at the land a bullock for a sin offering. A bullock. The 14th day, that doesn't match with what we know in Numbers or Exodus. Where's the lamb? There should be a Passover lamb on the 14th day. What's this bullock? Again, it's just a hint that uh, it, it's, it's a sort of jolt to remind us not all that meets the eye is quite as it seems. There is something very special going on here. And this sort of dislocation from the old laws is a reminder. Well, I'm going to finish finally by turning back to the waters. Do you remember those waters we saw coming out of the temple, going down the south side of the altar, flowing out beyond the temple, well beyond? This is a picture of the Holy Spirit. It's a picture of the doctrine of the gospel, worked on by the Holy Spirit, bringing life. And that's exactly what it does. It revives the land, it revives the plants, the trees, it revives the fish. And the Lord Jesus spoke to that woman at Samaria when she asked him, where should we worship? She said, he said to her, if only you knew who it was you were speaking to. If only you knew who I was, I would give you water. And that water would become in you a well, springing up to everlasting life. And again, a little later, at the Feast of Tabernacles, he promises that those who believe in him out of their belly shall throw rivers of living water in fulfilment of the scripture. Which scripture? I don't think there's any other passage that will meet it so well. Proverbs, which describes the uh, overflowing of waters, sort of half matches it. Some of the promises in Isaiah half match it, but they don't speak about water flowing out from the inner being. You see, friends, we are the temple. Christ is the temple, and in him, the chief cornerstone, we are the temple. 
This vision is of us now. It's of us here and now. This is the place where the Lord Jesus Christ reigns and rules. Not in Mount Moriah, but in Mount Zion, where David ruled. Where he, and his throne is in our midst. And he is our sanctuary. He is our holy of holies. He is the candlestick of our lives. His truth, his perfections, his light, his doctrine, that is our light. His body is our showbread. His blood is our wine. His love, our light and our comfort. He is our altar and our strength. He is our throne of grace. And he is the man appointed by the Father as our perfect mediator. He is our prince and our king. And to him we must look.